We're going to begin at Psalm 62, verse 9 this evening. Psalm 62 and verse 9. Top Chef is a TV cooking competition show where a tournament of chefs contend in increasingly difficult and sometimes absurd challenges under nearly impossible conditions and time constraints in order to make the finest food possible. The latest season of the show took place in Colorado, and in one of the final challenges, the last three chefs of the year were brought to a river where they had to catch their own fish and then prepare a dish with whatever they caught for two judges, and they had 40 minutes to do the whole thing. The contestants somehow pulled off the feet. One of them, who was short on time, having trouble getting a fish out of the water, decided to utilize a raw preparation for her dish, not unusual for fine dining. But when the two judges came around, the one who was a local chef and a local expert in that uh, type of product, he commented on the presentation and the technique, but then he said gravely, what do bears do in the woods? And then he proceeded to explain how the water at that particular elevation was tainted and therefore made the fish unsafe to eat unless it was cooked all the way through. The other judge, who had, not been, who had been about to take a bite, turned to him and said, so I shouldn't eat this? Absolutely not, he said. Uh, you're going to get sick. And so the dish lost by default. It was a pretty interesting scene of encouragement and information and instruction and warning all sort of rolled together into one. As we wrap up Psalm 62 this evening, David is going to deliver to us words of comfort and instruction with a few healthy warnings along the way. So far in this psalm, the most prominent theme has been the salvation of God and how stable and secure it is. We've been celebrating that for a few weeks now. David spoke also about the wicked men who were conspiring to pull him off the throne so that they could seize power for themselves. And now in the final third of the song, David will look at these two themes again, as is common in a lot of the psalms. They'll have, you know, theme A, theme B, and then they'll talk through them again. And those are the power of God and the plots of men. The first four verses we have this evening, or sorry, the four verses we have this evening, they're split into two parts. The first half, speaking not just about wicked men, but speaking about all men in general. And then the last two verses speak again of our God. And as David brings this great song to a close, he will not only encourage us, but he's going to exhort us as well. Having given us this knowledge, this true knowledge, he then expects you and I to do something with that information and make choices accordingly. He expects us to respond to what we're hearing and to what has been revealed from heaven and to make a choice between God's way and man's. He's going to lay out very clearly the difference. He expects us to choose between the two. And so as we move through these final lines, we should be encouraged. But having been shown the truth, we should not leave unchanged. No, David points these words at us. He points these words at you and at me, and he demands that we do something with them. And so we're going to begin in verse 9. David says, Surely men of low degree are a vapor, men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. 
Now, unlike in stanza one, if you were here with us a few weeks ago, back then he was talking about a small band of traitors that were working in the palace with him. But here in this section, he's extended his field of view to all men everywhere. You know, whether they're people of highest state or lowest state, the haves or the have-nots, the privileged or the oppressed. He says, look, all of them get the same grade in the end. And he says, surely, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you're a vapor on the scales of eternity. Now, we took a look at this idea back in Psalm 39. As we have noticed, there's some similar themes between these two first psalms dedicated to Jedithan. In Psalm 39, David was talking about life as a vapor and needing the salvation of God, and he was in a time of great discouragement and distress. Here, he's in a much better position emotionally and spiritually, but the themes are still coming up about life as a vapor and how much we require the salvation of God. And so here... Uh, David expands the idea of life being a vapor to include just all of humanity. humanity. You notice what he says. He says, look, all together, if you piled up all the people, great and not so great, from all of human history, and all of their accomplishments, and all of their strength, and all of their genius, and all of their wealth, if you somehow lumped that all together and got it all on the scales of heaven, it doesn't even register. It doesn't move the needle even a little bit. It's like, you know, dropping, it's not even as much as dropping one little parsley leaf on the grocery scale, right? When you have your bagged produce in there and you're seeing how much it weighs, figure out how much it's going to cost. He says it's not even going to move it as much as one tiny little parsley leaf. That wouldn't move the needle either. He says it's it's even worse than that. It goes upward. Like vapor, it's going to rise up off the scale. There's nothing that mankind can individually or collectively do to make a mark on on eternity. There's just not. You know, we have these ideas in sort of secular culture, right? The, The man apart from God realizes that he needs something, right? And and the Bible describes it this way. It says they have eternity in their hearts. But men apart from God, they're still looking for meaning. They're still looking for purpose. They're still hoping for a legacy beyond themselves, right? And every now and then one of these movies will come along and and they'll grab hold and they'll they'll have some, you know, pithy line that people start repeating. The one that comes to mind right now is uh, from one of the, I think it was from that movie Gladiator. What we do in life echoes in eternity, not if you're not a Christian. If you, the, the Bible declares that if you piled everything, all the great things that all of the people in all of the world with everything that they had ability, you piled it all together, the best of the best of the best, and hey, throw in the, the, the not so good stuff too. Put it all on the scale. It's not going to make any mark on eternity. It's not even going to register as having existed apart from God. There's no mark on eternity, no lasting legacy, no ultimate purpose to the human life apart from the intervention of God and apart from a life filled up by the Spirit. We're reminded of God's message to Belshazzar in Daniel 5. What happened? He's having that big party, debauchery, big important King Belshazzar, right? Ruler of the whole world or so he thought. And they look over and they get all freaked out because there's a hand writing on the wall. And what did, what did the Lord say to him? He said, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. It means you didn't measure up to anything at all. You got a real problem. You didn't make a mark. He hadn't measured up. The man who had more power and more wealth and more prominence than maybe anybody else on the entire earth at the time, he got a big red X as far as heaven was concerned. Now, 
In this verse here, we should find an encouragement and an exhortation. First, we should be encouraged that the purpose of life, the purpose of your life and my life, is not to see who can get the most stuff, or who can claw their way to the top of the heap, or who is more quote-unquote important in the eyes of the world. In other words, God doesn't think less of you if you don't have a certain number of friends on Facebook, right? And we are a fame-obsessed culture in the West, and especially in America. And now because of the internet and because of social media, because of things like YouTube, people who have no discernible talents can become famous, right? You see some of these people are like, I have 10 million followers on, or subscribers on YouTube. But what do you do? Well, I, you know, smash bananas on my face. What? Like, what's happening right now? So on one hand, anybody can be famous, and so there's this huge drive, right, in the secular culture right now just to fame, and how many followers, and how many retweets, and how many likes, and and how important are you? How many people know your name? None of that matters in the eyes of the Lord. That's not what life is about. That's, That's not what the scales of eternity are weighed upon. And I think that's a very freeing thought. It's a great encouragement. The Lord says, hey, none of that really matters. None of that has any lasting impact whatsoever. He wants to talk to us individually and as a church. He wants to talk to us about our relationship with Him. That's what matters. But we should also be exhorted by this verse. If we are putting our trust and our hope in any human being or any human structure to assure us or to take care of us or to secure us, well, you know what? No matter who that human being is, we're going to be disappointed. You know, that's the message that David had for us today. He says, hey, look, you don't put your trust in a human being, whether that's, you know, a a powerful person from the world's perspective, like a politician or some sort of leader, whether that's even a, a good and godly person. You don't put your trust in the servant of the Lord. You put your trust in the Lord. Because no matter who it is, if it's a, some pastor or president or politician or powerful leader, none of that matters. If you put your trust in a person, hey, he says, that's all a vapor. You can't anchor your lives to that. It's like trying to tie yourself down to a puff of smoke for safety. Some of you guys work in jobs where you're supposed to tie down, right, to be safe. You're working on the roof and, or whatever. Or if you were climbing a mountain, you're supposed to secure yourself, Right? Well, you don't tie yourself on to, oh, there's a wisp of smoke. Let me tie on to that. That'll, that'll help me. That'll keep me from dying here. Well, of course not. But this is what David's saying. He says, yeah, if you put your trust in man or man-made structures to be the anchor of your life, it's like tying off to a little puff of smoke. It's like a ship using a little bit of mist as an anchor in a typhoon. And so men are not our hope. That's made abundantly clear here. But then there's a secondary exhortation for each of us. Remember who's speaking. It's King David, the man on the throne. You know, as he wrote these words, I'm guessing it made him chuckle a little bit. Because he was the one man of highest degree in the entire nation. The slayer of giants. The sweet psalmist of Israel. I mean, he accomplished, let's be real for a minute. David accomplished more on life, in life on paper then we're going to accomplish, right? I'm probably not going to slay a giant anytime soon. You know, I'm, I'm probably not going to be the king of God's people. In fact, I know I'm not going to be the king of God's people. I'm not writing songs that the whole, you know, church sings for the rest of our generations. I mean, David was, from the human point of view, an incredibly accomplished man, a, a special 
person in, in how God used him, right? Had a fantastic calling and wonderful opportunities from the Lord. And so here the Lord says, here's what I want you to write in this song. Oh, that's nothing. <laughs> it's kind of like when Paul wrote in his epistle, all, all of these things that people are impressed by in my life, I, I just count it all as loss. It might as well just be garbage that we throw out in comparison to just having a relationship with Christ and being, having that intimacy and communion with him. And so David here, the king of all Israel, is reminded by God that, hey, your life on earth is a vapor. He's reminded of that. And so the secondary exhortation for us here is to take an audit of how we're expending this life. It's tax time, right? Got a few more days to file your taxes if you haven't done it. If you don't do it, good chance you're going to get audited. Nobody wants to do that. But you know what? We need to give ourselves spiritual audits. We need to take a look inside and say, how are things going in here? How's the system working? Am I in line with what the Lord wants? Am I in line with the Word of God? David was really good about this most of the time. You know, he's famous for one of his most famous psalms is Psalm 139. You know, search me and know me, O God. Try me and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. It's a spiritual audit. He says, hey, Lord, I want to know if everything's going okay between you and I. And he invited the Lord to do that. And so we need to audit ourselves as well. Are we busy with lots of plans and pursuits that have no eternal significance? Right? We can live this life in such a way where we're actively investing and participating in God's kingdom right now, and we can live life in such a way where it's all just going to be burned up. It's all just going to be wasted on the other side of eternity where it's like, man, what did I spend all that effort and time and energy on? There's nothing left. And so it's good for us to take a spiritual audit of our lives and of this vapor that God has given us. It's interesting, the Lord, it says in in the book of Genesis, he breathed right into Adam and Eve. He breathed that breath. And we sing that song, I love that song, it's your breath in our lungs, right? And it just reminds us of this idea, we're a puff of smoke, we're a vapor in comparison to the scales of eternity. Okay, but am I taking advantage of this breath that God has given me in order to do something wonderful uh, for him and toward his glory? Now think about it this way. Can any of you tell me who the wealthiest person of the first century was? Can anybody tell me who the wealthiest person of the colonial era was or the 1800s? Probably not. Maybe a few of you history buffs can throw a name or two out there. But if I asked you, started asking us around, start naming significant servants of the Lord Jesus Christ from those eras. Oh, we could all start being like, here's a guy, here's a gal, here's somebody who, who moved the needle of eternity for Jesus Christ. Here's somebody who brought other human beings to heaven with them through the way they live their life and through the way they spread the gospel. Yeah, I don't know who the richest person of 1895 was. Who cares? They're gone. Their wealth is gone. Their legacy is gone. But we look at these people like throughout history, we think of like, let's talk, I can't even, let's start naming people from the first century, all of the apostles and then the people under them that, that got saved. And let's talk about men like William Wilberforce and these other people who did these incredible things because they were expending their lives in the service of Jesus Christ. And that's what the, David wants us to think about. Verse 10 continues, do not trust in oppression nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Talking to oppressors and thieves here at the beginning, 
David's not really preaching to the choir here at first. It's more like preaching to the chain gang, right? But I do love to catch a glimpse of his gracious heart. He's talking to the very cheats and liars who were trying to find a way to steal his throne. Remember that from before. We're, we've broken this psalm up piece by piece. But he, he's finished talking about men in his own cabinet and his own administration who are conspiring to kill him and get his power. And rather than just say, hey, send the axe man to just start lopping heads off, David preaches a little sermon to him here. He says, hey, you guys, you're going the wrong way. You're headed toward a dead end, spiritually speaking. And he's talking to these guys. He calls out to them and he says, guys, that's not the way for you to get to a meaningful, satisfied life. Let me tell you how to get where you want to go. It's incredibly gracious. There's that old familiar trope in movies and TV shows. The career criminal wants to get out of the racket and join regular society so he can live out a normal life with his loved ones, right? Of course, he'll just have to do this one last job, right? How many movies and TV shows start with that phrase, this one last job? Guess what? Whoever utters the words one last job, 90% chance that guy's dead before the credits roll, right? We all know it. We all know it's coming. We all know the one last job, it's going to be a, it's going to be a cakewalk. We know it's going to go completely sideways, right? That's why we're watching the movie. Because it's all about how the one last job goes terribly. How that dude, yeah, he's fooling himself. We all know that. There's no one last job. You're fooling yourself. And we understand that, but it's just kind of interesting We shake our heads at the characters and we think, oh man, you shouldn't have done it. You should have just run off and been with your wife and kids and and forget about that one last job. Why'd you do it? But you know, it's easy for us to do little versions of that in our own heads and in our own lives all the time. Little compromises. It's just one last last little thing before before I go God's way. You know, things that we know won't lead us closer to God, but we think, hey, it'll be okay. I'll work through this system. I'll get myself right back on track. This is probably like a shortcut. Get me where I want to go. When Dave would tell us tonight, hey, this doesn't work. You can't trust in those sorts of things. If men are not trustworthy, man, material things and ill-gotten material things are even less trustworthy, right? Now, another way of phrasing what he's saying here is, hey, living life at the expense of others is not God's way. I mean, what is he talking about? He's talking about robbery, taking things that don't belong to us, oppression. Those are severe things. We understand that. But let's take it to the further degree. Let's take it to a more ultimate spiritual degree. You know, taking advantage of people. That's like oppressing people manipulating people for our own personal gain. Always taking, never giving. Those behaviors may not be as frowned upon or as violent as out-and-out robbery or oppression, but they flow from the same place, right? And in here, we're all friends. Yeah, they flow from the same place. It's like how Jesus said, yeah, you haven't committed adultery physically, but if you've lusted in a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her as far as the Spirit is concerned. And the same idea here. I don't rob people. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not involved in systematic oppression. Okay, but what about, do I manipulate people for my own gain? And do I, you know, am I always taking and not giving? Am I taking advantage of people when I can? Uh, same, same polluted river, right? It's just that the one further upstream has more pollutant in it. And so... Maybe your wealth has increased honestly. David moves on here. He, he, he goes a big step further. 
It's pretty easy for us to mentally separate ourselves from oppression or robbery, but notice the back half of this verse. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. No qualifier, no saying, no, no, if you stole all the money from Fort Knox, he says, hey, if your riches increase, if you prosper, he says, do not set your heart on them. He's not talking about cheating or stealing. Maybe your riches and your wealth have increased honestly. Hey, his encouragement to us is material things are still not trustworthy. We must not build our lives on the foundation of financial security because as history has proven so many times, we could wake up tomorrow and half our wealth all be gone or all our wealth be gone. A few years ago when all that stuff was happening with Greece, stuff still happening in Greece, we just don't care about it anymore. All that stuff was happening in Greece. People in Greece woke up and the government said, by the way, we took a bunch of all of your money, everybody's money out of your banks last night and you can't access your banks now. Sorry. And that's just the way it was. There's nothing anybody could do about it. It was just gone. Or the crash of the Great Recession, right? People woke up one day, and what was the joke? My 401k is a 201k. It was just all gone. It just evaporated like dandelion spores all of a sudden. And that's the thing. We can't build our life on the idea, well, my life is secure because of my financial security. And David says, hey, man, that's a vapor. Don't, don't give your heart to them. Don't put your heart on that. Derek Kidner writes this, absorption with riches is no less perilous than a life of crime. That's what David's saying. He first talking to oppressors and robbers and he says, hey, and now, by the way, if you're just setting your heart on riches and thinking that's the answer to life, it's the same amount of danger. It's the same amount of risk. You might as well just be a career criminal as far as, you know, your security is concerned. And so when wealth entices us, here's the problem. Money is attractive, right? I mean, there's no getting around that. It's part of human nature. Money makes so many promises and seems like it can solve any problem, but it's just not true, and that's what David is saying here. And so when wealth entices us, we want to remember what David said so that we won't be tricked by treasure. Another translation puts this verse this way. It says, if wealth overflows, do not hand over your heart. Don't give your heart to it. It's a warning and an instruction for us. The idea is carried on, of course, in the New Testament, both in the teaching of Jesus and in the epistles. We're reminded in verses 9 and 10 that the flow of life begins in the trust of the heart. And what we set our trust upon is going to determine the type of life we build. And ultimately, it will determine how significant our lives are really going to be. In the first two stanzas, it's made abundantly clear that a life founded on the rock of Jesus Christ is safe and secure, and a life that is not fastened there is vanity, like a puff of vapor that's there for a second and then just gone. Now, in the last two verses, David turns from evaluating men to taking a look again at God. Verse 11, God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. David wants to get our attention on two very simple but all important truths. The first is this, power belongs to God. Good reminder. Just every day, all the time, as much as we can, just as we see things going on in our lives or in the world around us, power belongs to God. Now notice, this is a truth that was directly spoken by God himself. It wasn't just David's theory. He says, hey, I heard this, God has said it. And it's something that the Lord wants us to still be mindful of. I know that because remember when the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray, what was one of the things he taught them to pray? At the end there, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Power belongs to God. It's obviously something that the Lord thinks we need to remind ourselves of. And this should be a constant encouragement for us. God is in charge. 
Those in positions of power on the earth are allowed those positions by God. Those in those situations that we face that may frighten us or discourage us or weigh us down, they are not outside the reach of God's mighty arm. God is able. The Bible says he is able to make you stand and to perform what he has promised, to raise you up from the dead. He is able to make all grace abound towards you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. It's a direct quote from the New Testament, a promise made to you and to me. But not only does all power belong to God, David gives us part two of what he's heard in verse 12. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. Stop there for a moment. This God of limitless power is also the God of loving kindness and mercy and affection toward his people. Listen, imagine if you can, just start thinking about how powerful God is to spin the cosmos into existence, to hold it all together, to perform all the acts of creation, all the miracles, to have, as Psalm 95 says, the depths of the earth in his hands, right? I mean, we just, we can't even fathom how powerful God is. Now hear what David is saying, his mercy is as great as his power. Power belongs to God, mercy belongs to God. He's so powerful that he can give eternal lasting value and weight to the nothing vapor of a human life. And he's so merciful that he accepts people like us who deserve death and yet are granted life through the power and love of Jesus Christ. Power and mercy. The mercy David is talking about here is specifically God's covenant love, meaning it is reserved for those who are in relationship with him. David had a covenant with God. We do too. It's different than David's covenant, but we have one. Jesus gave us the new covenant in his blood shed for us. A better covenant established on better promises, Hebrews says. And then these great, these two attributes of God, his great power and his great mercy, are wonderfully tangled up together. That's an important thing to remember as well. J.J. Stewart Perrone wrote this, Power without love is brutality, and love without power is weakness. Power is the strong foundation of love, and love is the beauty and the crown of power. That's who our God is. And then after that lovely encouragement, David gives us one more exhortation to think about. For you render to each one according to his work. And so the song closes with a reminder that we are all called to live this life according to a certain standard and purpose, and it's the standard and purpose God has revealed to us through his word. Now clearly... David is not talking about gaining salvation here. We know from earlier that David did not earn his way into his refuge. He was led there by God. In the previous psalm, he had said, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. And now we get to Psalm 62. There he is. The Lord has led him there. And God, by his mercy, allowed David, an unworthy sinner, to receive salvation freely. It was a free gift. And David writes as if anyone can receive this free gift if they are willing to go God's way and to trust in the Lord. And so verse 12 here is not talking about earning your salvation. We can't earn salvation. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the Bible makes it clear that God repays people for what they do in this life. He says to his enemies, vengeance is mine, I will repay He says in the Gospels, hey, some of these folks that are doing certain things, they're going to be punished with many stripes, right? So the Lord does repay. And the Bible also says that God plans to reward his people for the things they do in service to him. Paul talks a lot about it in his letters. And we think about passages like the parable of the talents, 
these other passages like that in the New Testament. And we receive a lot of encouragement and instruction on how to live life in such a way that we will be rewarded richly by God in eternity. And so as the psalm ends, we are encouraged, we are exhorted. In these three stanzas, we've seen that there is a God of infinite power and loving kindness who is ready not only to rescue us, but then to sustain us and to make something beautiful and meaningful out of the little wisps of our lives. Apart from this God, there is absolutely, utterly no hope. No hope. Apart from a relationship with the God of the Bible through Jesus Christ. But with this God, with Him, there is more than we could ever ask or imagine. We're warned to not be distracted by the fleeting lies of this fallen world, but instead we must train ourselves to trust in the Lord, hope in the Lord, wait on the Lord, and along the way we contend to our lives so that they are growing according to His purposes and then enjoy the supply, the security, and the salvation found only in the Lord Jesus Christ, our rock, our fortress, a refuge for us, who is coming quickly with His reward in His hand. Amen?